I invite you to take a Bible in hand, and we're going to talk about the Bible tonight. Uh, So turn to Psalm 18, verse 30, is going to be a theme verse for us this evening. I want to welcome everyone here. If it's your uh, first time here, in a couple weeks we're doing a series on Sunday night here in the fall, Hard Questions About Christianity. And this is our third part. We've done, Why Am I Here? Why Is There Evil Tonight? Our question for us, is the Bible trustworthy? If you're using uh, one of the Bibles in the pew rack, you can find Psalm 18 on page 455. Well, before I read this verse for us this evening, I do want to give you a couple recommendations. Uh, To answer the question tonight, is the Bible trustworthy? There are numerous and many resources. Um, Tonight is a sermon, not a Sunday school lesson, not a seminary lecture. Um, If you want to dig further into uh, this topic, there are good and helpful resources. Um, Some recent ones I would would commend to you. Greg Lanier uh, has a small volume called How We Got the Bible. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has uh, a book called From the Mouth of God. It covers both our, our doctrine of what the Bible is, and also, it has some help in reading the Bible. Um, Michael Kruger, in the last couple decades, has done tremendous work uh, concerning the New Testament letters and the early church and early Christianity. And so, um, if you're really interested in understanding uh, the New Testament and why we believe that the New Testament is God's Word, I commend to you Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. And then overall, the Reformed Doctrine of Scripture, um, Dr. Guy Waters has a book called For the Mouth of the Lord Has Spoken, The Doctrine of Scripture. Those four resources among dozens that are very helpful on this uh, will be uh, an aid to you and a great help if you want to dig into this. But tonight, I'm going to do my best to uh, look at God's Word together and when possible, avoid technical language when possible uh, to see what the scripture says and follow the arc and the narrative of God's word about God's word. Before doing so, let's ask uh, for his help in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have preserved the witness that we need. You have preserved the bread of life recorded on pages for us, but we know that it needs to come off the page and by your Holy Spirit at work among us become illuminated to our minds that we might understand and feed on it this evening. So to that end, Heavenly Father, I ask that your Spirit would be at work through the reading and preaching of your word. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Pleasing to you, my rock, my redeemer. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy and an errant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. 
The Bible trustworthy? Thousands of years now, the Bible that you hold in your hand, Christians have answered yes to that question. Yes, the Bible is trustworthy. Now, of course, we know that's not everyone's opinion. Perspective, in a letter, Mark Twain once described the Bible saying, and I quote, it is full of interest, it has noble poetry in it, and some clever fables, and some blood-drenched history, and some good morals, and a wealth of obscenity, and upwards of a thousand lies. End quote. Mark Twain's letters. David here in Psalm 18, verse 30 says, the word of the Lord proves true. David is saying his words have been tested. They have never failed. His word has been examined. It is flawless. So here are two beliefs about the Bible. It's either filled with, and I quote, upward of a thousand lies, or to quote Psalm 18, the word of the Lord proves true. You might say, well, Mark Twain doesn't say it's all false, but that it's filled with lies. Maybe you're here tonight and you would say, that's my position. I think there's good things in the Bible. It contains things that are helpful, even things that are universally true, but it's not all true. It contains both truth and lies. That may seem like a reasonable position to ears, modern man, and like I said, anyone in the pew tonight. The problem is that the Bible does not give space for such a position. Again, the word of the Lord proves true. The Bible claims that it is trustworthy and all true. But there is something that these opposing beliefs have in common. They are beliefs. They are statements of one's faith. If Mr. Twain gave us a list of the so-called lies he found in the Bible, we could spend the next year answering his objections, and we could do so with plausible explanations. And at the end of that year, if you have questions, you may not be convinced that the Bible is all true, but if you're intellectually honest, you couldn't remain absolutely certain that it is filled with lies. You could insist that it's filled with lies, but you would be stating your belief. Now, your position is that the Bible can't be true. We're glad you're here tonight. And I just want to begin by pointing out to you that your position requires faith. So, would you consider the Christian position tonight? For the Christian, you might say, how dare you say that my belief in the total truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Bible is a statement of faith? Isn't the historic Christian position that the Bible is true whether I believe it or not? I love the way, and I know some of you have probably heard this before, uh, the way that Charles Spurgeon once put it. Defend the Bible I'd sooner defend a lion. Don't defend the Bible. You open its cage and let it roar. I say amen. I agree that the Bible is true whether I believe it or not, but we must recognize that there are things yet fulfilled 
between Genesis to Revelation. So we see many promises of Scripture already fulfilled, and given its track record, we should expect everything yet to be fulfilled to be fulfilled. However, since there are promises to be fulfilled, the position affirming the Bible's total truthfulness and trustworthiness does remain a statement of faith for us as the believer. There's another category, that is agnosticism. There are two general agnostic approaches. One agnostic position is the position that the answer cannot be known. We cannot know the answer to, is the Bible trustworthy? That would be a firm agnostic position. A softer form of agnosticism might be that you don't know whether the Bible is true or not. If that is you tonight, we're glad you're here too. Whether you're a firm or soft agnostic concerning the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Bible, my encouragement to you is that don't remain content in your agnosticism, not knowing the answer. That you would consider with us to seek the answer to whether the Bible is trustworthy. If after examining the issue, you remain agnostic, that's one thing. But if your default position remains the agnostic position, it would be such a shame if that's your position because you're preoccupied with things related to this world when eternity is at stake. So whatever view you have of the Bible, I invite all of us this evening to hear and consider historic Christian position concerning truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Bible. As I said earlier, I can't be comprehensive, but I want us to see three things related to this question. First, how the Bible tells us of its origins, the origins of the Bible. First thing. Second thing, must consider the consequences of its origins. Then lastly, what does it mean to trust the Bible? What does it mean to trust the Bible? The origins of the Bible. Remember we began this series, Why Am I Here? And in doing so, we looked at the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God, that's why we're here, and to enjoy Him forever. The very next question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism points us to the origins of the Bible. So the question is, question two, what rule hath God, and here's the key word, given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? What rule did God give? And the answer, the word of God, then What do we mean by the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? It's the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. So in short, why do we have a Bible in the first place? Why do we have this, this collection of books and letters and poetry and psalms? Why do we have it? 66 books? written over hundreds of years, many authors? Well, the Bible teaches that it was God's idea to give us a book. It was God's idea to deposit His Word 
in writing that it might be preserved for the ages. It was God's idea to give us this mini library, that it would be a holy library. The Bible claims to be from God. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the word of the Lord, or the word of God, appears over 300 times. 300 times. God spoke to the, the fathers, the patriarchs we see in Scripture. God spoke to a man named Moses in a particular way. God providentially prepared Moses in his upbringing, his rearing, that he wasn't raised like his, his, his brethren in the home of Hebrew slaves in Egypt. But through God's hand on his life, he was raised in Pharaoh's court and privileged and given the best education that the world had to offer in his time. Because part of God's purpose for Moses was that he would be the first to write the word of God. And through Moses, God would give his people instructions for living in covenant with him. And when God redeems the Hebrews from slavery, God wants to make sure that they have instructions for living as redeemed people. But he wants those instructions to go beyond the life of one man, so he prepared and shaped a man who could record it and pass it on for generations. These instructions we attribute to Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, Came known as the law. We see in Exodus 24, verse 4, it explicitly says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then when we come to the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 31, 9 through 13, it there again says, Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders. And then Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God at the place that he will choose, shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Moses, as he's leaving, instructs, says, you're to be a people of this book. This is what God has given to you, and you are to gather men, women, boys and girls, to know his will and his ways. And then as Moses departs, it says in Joshua chapter 1 that the Lord told Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. So the law is the first category of Scripture, the first five books. It was the basis of Israel's religion and existence. And it becomes the launching point for the other 34 books of the Old Testament. The next section is the Old Testament prophets. The message of the prophets will center around Israel's faithfulness or failure to keep God's covenant. Either their obedience or disobedience to what he has revealed and had recorded for them. And then the final section of the Old Testament is called the writings, which include 
examples of those who lived in faithfulness to God's law and covenant. It includes wisdom for walking with this God. And it gives expressions of prayer and praise for God's people in relationship with Him. My point here is that in God's giving the law to Moses, God Himself set a precedent and laid out His plan that how He would communicate salvation with mankind. See, there are occasions where He would speak directly and audibly, there are times where He'd give dreams and visions. But in order that his will might be known by many, the normative way that he would reveal his will is to give his word to human authors. So, God's son, Jesus, came to fulfill what the law requires and to accomplish redemption. There was, again, the need to explain the significance and ramifications of what he did and why he did it. And so having the example and precedent of the Old Testament, the followers of Jesus, those set apart by Jesus himself, wrote. So the apostles are commissioned to do what Moses and the prophets did, and explain God's mighty acts record his revealed will. Jesus, in many ways, told them that they are set apart for this task. John 14, verse 26. Jesus told his disciples before he goes to the cross that he's sending the Holy Spirit to be the helper. And specifically for these apostles, he lays out there is a very specific Holy Spirit-enabled task that they will do. So, in verse 26 of John 14, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This helps us further understand how God gave his word through human authors. It was by his spirit working in and through them. So the apostle Peter in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. The Bible's origins, the breath of God, is from the mouth of God. But the Old Testament and the New Testament span hundreds of years and have many authors. God did not deliver it as one book. How did we get one book with 66 books in it? Now, some have answered this and said, well, it was the church that chose which books should be Scripture. The misunderstanding... This is pretty close to saying that the church invented the Bible. That is not the Protestant Reformed view. Think of it this way. It's not accurate to say that Isaac Newton invented gravity. We say that he discovered it. How did he discover it? He recognized 
how it operated. And in a similar way, the church did not choose or invent the Bible, but recognize the books that are uniquely God's word, put them into one collection. They recognize. So for the Old Testament, we recognize the same 39 books that Jesus and the apostles recognized as the word of God. Luke 24, verse 44. This is after Jesus' resurrection. and He's talking to his disciples and he wants to explain to them the significance and the ramifications of his fulfillment of God's law and the redemption that he accomplished. And where does he point them to? These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is another way of saying the writings, must be fulfilled. Jesus recognized the same, if you could turn to the table of contents, Genesis to Malachi. That was the Bible that Jesus loved, studied, and read. That was the, the scrolls that every time it was read that this is my Father's Word me through human authors. Breathed out by my Father. Not according to the will of men, but as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then, the New Testament era, before even all the letters and books of the New Testament were completed. See the same recognizing happening. It wasn't a matter of there was some secret council that came together and they had all these like options. They said, here are the 27. Why 27? We don't know, just 27 books. And this will be what we, we, we decide to be the New Testament scriptures to add to the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't the case. The apostles knew what they were doing. They knew that there was new covenant realities and that God wanted his revelation and truth recorded and preserved. And then they recognized that within their own writings and the writings of others. So 2 Peter 3.15 And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So Peter, recognizing Paul's writings, verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's encouraging that Peter at times struggled to read Paul's letters. I, I don't know what portion of Paul's letters it was that he struggled with, but there was something. It could have been Romans 9 through 11. It could have been, who knows what, it could have been 1 Corinthians 14. It could have been all, I, and I'm, I say, Peter, amen. There are times I, I have difficulty discerning and interpreting Paul's letters. But Peter's warning saying, but be careful with them. Don't twist them as others have done as they do with the Scriptures. Peter's point, treat Paul's letters as Scripture from God, from the mouth of God. 
Paul understood his own letters to be the same. He does this at the conclusion of several of his epistles. One that stands out is Colossians 4.16. Paul says, hey, church at Colossae, I wrote you a letter. This is what I want you to do with it. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Latiosians. Excuse me. And see that you also read the letter from them. See also that you read the letter that they have. Well, this is what they did with the Old Testament synagogue. They opened the scroll and they read it for instruction to hear the word of God. Now Paul is self-consciously, intentionally instructing the church to do the same thing with his letters. The apostles recognize the other apostles' writings as Scripture. The apostles recognize their own writings as Scripture. Now, the, the completed 27 books of the, Old Test, uh, of the New Testament, what we currently have, it did take time. But we would expect it to take time. They didn't live in the era of Amazon Prime, right? They did not live in the era of digital communication. We would expect that to recognize all 27 books could take an exceedingly long time in such an era. But eventually, the church did. And we see throughout the, the, the second and third century where church fathers, they start quoting from the Gospels, Paul, throughout the New Testament, and treating as Scripture. So what was it? How did they recognize which 27 books belonged in the New Testament? Well, they recognized books that God in His providence had exposed to many churches. And if possible, all the churches. They weren't obscure letters that they said, oh, here must be the Word of God. Because if it's the Word of God, God wants His people to have it. So that was one of the things that they recognized. One of the other things that they recognized is that these letters had attributes that were distinct. There was something of divine qualities to letters and Gospels. Testament. Meaning that they spoke of heavenly things consistently sharing the same gospel message. They also noticed the way in which there was a corporate reception, meaning that as letters were passed around and used in worship that the church ministered to, letters were powerful. They also recognized letters of apostolic origins, that every letter in the New Testament, though not directly penned by an apostle is tied to those who Jesus commissioned to be his messengers to specifically tell the new covenant. And as far as we can tell, in 367, Athanasius listed all 27 books of the New Testament. So that's his origins. Because of its divine origins, recognize God's word, the church did not choose it. So here are the consequences of its divine origins. There's three consequences for us tonight. 
And you may be thinking, if all this rests on the church recognizing the right books, that seems and feels like a shaky foundation. How can we be fully persuaded that the Bible is trustworthy if it rests upon this? The question is, really, where could we turn for evaluation of the Bible? Who has the authority to evaluate it? The answer is there's no higher authority than God himself. So if this book is of divine origins, none but God, God alone, can affirm its authenticity. It does. Calvin put it this way in his Institutes, God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word. Scripture is indeed self-authenticated. Francis Turretin put it this way, Thus Scripture, which is the first principle in the supernatural order, is known by itself and has no need of arguments derived from without to prove and make itself known. They're both saying the same thing. If it's from God, who else but God can properly tell you it is true and trustworthy? God's word is self-authenticating. But the Bible teaches numerous places. Call your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Apostle Paul is giving God thanks that the Thessalonians believe the gospel. So in verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, brothers, we know that God has called you because when God's word was read, didn't fall on deaf ears. The Holy Spirit is at work among you. And in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this. Paul, what are you thanking God constantly for, for these Thessalonians? That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Now we've got to pay attention to what Paul is saying. He's not saying, uh, I'm thankful to you Thessalonians. I'm thankful that you received my word because I told you it was the word of God. He gives credit to God, not to them. The thanks is directed towards God. I thank God that you received the word, not as a word from men, but as from God. God's word is self-authenticating. It is the same spirit who inspired the human authors, who watched over the process, who developed their intellect, who spoke through them, who superintended that everything that they expressed expressed the mind of God. That same spirit is the one who then gives illumination to the hearer of God's word, that they might be convinced that it is God's word. Westminster Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 3, gives a a list of of ways that we could commend the Scripture to someone. Say, 
you may be induced by the testimony of the church to have a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing that we teach our kids that the Bible is God's word. We should do that. And then you may point out the heavenliness of the matter, meaning that it speaks of things of another world, the efficacy of the doctrine, that its teaching is powerful, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole. And it goes on, list the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation. And listen to this, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof. They're saying these are all good arguments and all these arguments do give abundant evidence that the Bible is God's word, but listen to this. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of this infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. The church did not produce the Bible. The word of God that produced the church. Sandrum, as you go back to Malawi, brother, preach the word. It is not for you to plant a youth ministry it is not for you to plant a church. It is the work of the Word that will do it. Back to that Spurgeon quote. Open the cage and let the lion roar, brother. That's the first consequence of the Bible's origins. The second is that the Bible is inerrant. And what I mean by inerrant is that it has no, nothing that is false, there is nothing that is not true. There is no error in it. And I could spend the next 45 minutes explaining the doctrine of inerrancy. Well, quite simply, the starting place for you is this. Remember what we read earlier, this God, his way is perfect. So if God's ways are perfect, then his word will reflect his ways. What you say about his word is an assessment of his character. He is a God who cannot tell a lie. The word is true. Psalm 12, verse 6. The word of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. What the Bible claims for itself, because the Bible itself claims to be the word of God. The necessary consequence of its origin. That's the second. The third consequence of his origin is that if this is God's word for his people, that they might know him, love him, and serve him, then we would expect that God wouldn't allow it to be lost. We would expect that God would preserve it. That's what he's done. What he's done through the ages. That throughout time and history, what he intended for you to know about the way of salvation is kept it for you. That you could open it today and read it in a language you understand. We see in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8, after the wicked rule of Manasseh. Manasseh didn't want to have anything to do with 
the law of God. It would seem that the law of God was lost, but it wasn't. While Josiah was king, Hilkiah the priest finds the deposit of God's revelation hidden in the temple. That was part of the instructions that God gave Moses from the very beginning, that they were to keep a copy of the law in the Ark of the Covenant. That was to remain in the temple. God revealed himself through Scripture and preserved the record of his revelation. Lastly tonight then, what does it mean to trust the Bible? What would it mean to trust the Bible? Well, I got three things for us again here. Our verse tonight said, he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The best example of trusting the Bible, Jesus himself as he's coming towards his death and his crucifixion on the cross, where does his mind go over and over again? It goes to the scriptures. So, to answer the question, why must you die, Jesus? Matthew 26, 24, he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He may say, Jesus why must you be betrayed? John thirteen eighteen. Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus, why must you go to the cross alone? Mark fourteen twenty seven. Said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus, why must you be hated so? John 15, 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus, would you use your power to escape the cross? Matthew 26, 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus a perfect example of trusting Scripture. What does that look like? Here, before his cross, we see years of diligent study of the Bible come to bear fruit. And the Bible for Christ was enough for him to persevere to go to the cross trusting his Father's will. So to trust the Bible is to study it diligently, not to win Bible trivia night, but because in it there is everything that you need for life and life eternal. It is sufficient for everything that you will face between now and seeing your Savior's face. And in that study, Jesus found, it, found everything he needed on the night. And we see him submit his Heavenly Father's word. So to trust 
the word is to study it diligently and then to submit to its authority. To hold it as the highest and supreme authority in your life. Whatever it speaks to, for you, it is the highest word, the ultimate authority on that subject. Here in our Savior, we see the example. He studied to know his Father's will and submitted to it. You, sinner, the will of the Father is revealed in his Son. Is the living word of the Father to you. So the last thing is, trust the Bible means to seek Jesus in the Scriptures. Can't know Him apart from the Bible. Now there are those who come to know Christ apart from owning and reading a Bible, but it's through the words the gospel that come to them through human messengers. It is the word through which we know the Savior. And it's not merely the, the conduit to, to him. It is in the words itself. Know Christ. Jesus taught this to his disciples. I read it earlier, but again in Luke 24, verse 44 through 45. These are my words that I spoke to you while I stood with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now there's a danger of being familiar with the scriptures, but missing who the scriptures are about. Dear friends, we've got to remember the Bible, it's, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And when reading the Bible, we need to recognize that it wasn't written to us. There were specific audiences, but we know that it was written for us, that we might know Jesus and know him truly. And we have to be careful because there is a danger of becoming too familiar but missing the point. Jesus critiqued the religious leaders of his day, telling them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There's a way to read the Bible and miss Jesus and not have life. But the implication is that come to Jesus in the scriptures and have life. That is the intent. The problem was not that they searched the scriptures, but that they refused to come to him. For those who seek him and go to the scriptures will receive life. He turns none away. Your friends, read God's word like your life depends on it, because it does. God, way is perfect. Word proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Amen, let us pray. Our Lord and our God, 
We thank you that you have condescended to reveal yourself in words that we were taught children. That you have made your testimony and your witness available. We recognize our need for your Holy Spirit to show us its truth, wonder, and its glory. So we ask that as we pick up the Bible and read it, may we see the glory of your Son. In Him, find life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.